0: Welcome to another episode of Brewroots. I'm Emily. And I'm Matt. And this is the podcast that tells you the stories behind your favorite beer.
1: Each week, we take a look behind the scenes at the craft beer industry. And now, on to the episode.
0: What's up, guys?
1: What up, Brewroots listeners?
0: Yeah, what up, Brewroots listeners?
1: This week, we've got a big treat for you. Huge treat. You already know, we interviewed Notch Brewing, aka Matt interviewed Notch Brewing.
0: Yeah. I did.
1: Unfortunately, I couldn't be there, but I wish I was. And I will make the trip down to Notch because apparently it's one of Ryan's favorite spots to go drink at.
0: It is. Ryan, are you a regular there? Do they know you? Or
2: do they just say long-haired kid? See, they recognize me for a couple reason. reasons. It is because the long hair, 100%. Yeah. But it's also because I wear the uh, the Notch hat. Yeah, you're there. always rocking that Notch hat. Yeah,
1: so. Do you ever get free stuff for that?
0: No. Oh, oh, maybe no. when this episode releases, you'll get a beer. I,
2: I, <laughs> I want to wear my brewery shirt tomorrow there. We'll see what happens. Yeah, but, try it. Um, I've been trying to get into the mug club there for years. I still have not been able to do it.
1: What does it take to get into the mug club?
2: Uh, someone has to give up one of their mugs.
1: Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, there's
2: like 50 Yeah, mugs. it's very, it's that's very exclusive. exclusive. Yeah. yeah. Basically, I'm pretty sure... It's been the same 50 people since they opened.
1: Yeah, who's going to give up their mug? I wouldn't. <laughs>
0: well, I'm very excited for this interview. I would for you, Ryan. Yeah. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I am very excited for this interview because uh, Chris is, is a no bullshit kind of guy. I'm going to put it that way. Mm. And, we uh, like
1: blunt people. We like people that can take the hard questions. Yeah,
0: he's very blunt and he's to the point And you can tell he cares about the craft beer industry as a whole. Yeah. And he wants everyone to be as good as they can be.
1: Yeah. He wants people to hold themselves to high standards. Yeah. And I appreciate that because like we've said, week after week, don't get into this business. If your objective is to make money and just be a business owner, get into this because you're passionate about where you're at. Yeah. You're passionate about the industry.
0: And, uh, he has some really interesting views and uh, I'm not going to say if I agree or disagree. I mostly agree with everything that he laid down in this interview And uh, I want to say no more because I want you guys to make your own decision.
1: But before that, Matt, why don't you just take us into the past? And now it's time for Today in Beer History.
0: I feel like we talk about this brewery a lot because there's a lot of history because they've been around for so long. Yeah,
1: they've been around for literally ever.
0: So on this day, on 1891, Anheuser-Busch secured all the rights to quote-unquote Budweiser trademark from former former owner Carl Conrad. Conrad and Bush first came upon the name during a vacation trip to Germany. Wouldn't you love to just go on a vacation trip with your friend? Mm, Just a casual one. What the hell? Let's shoot the shit and go to Germany. (laughs) Uh, They thought it was a good name that Americans could easily pronounce and associate with beer.
1: Yeah, I think that's pretty smart. Which is
0: pretty freaking smart because if you think about it, 1891 was Literally, like, 120 years ago. And yeah, they were like and it's still, still very
1: relevant, that, Budweiser. that
0: word. And, like, I don't even think of Budweiser as a German name, right? I just think yeah. of it as, like, if you were to say Budweiser and do, like, word association... I, thi- I would Ryan, associate
1: with America.
0: Ryan, Budweiser, word association, go.
2: America.
1: Horses. <laughs> Answer was beer, but hey, whatever. Uh, wrong. <laughs> wrong. Wrong. Shut wrong. up, Brian. I, I, mean, I, I can
2: see that, though. I mean, wiser, right? Half a wise. You know. Half a wiser? Yeah. 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 Food
0: that, I, I can it. Yeah. I just think that uh, that's pretty like cool foresight that these two gentlemen knew that in the future, like people would still be.
1: We should also <laughs> mention that. Huh. Thanks to Greg Smith, PhD, the beer fact for today, technically, was so bad that we had to go two days in the into future. the future for the beer fact of this yeah. Sunday. So hopefully you guys aren't too bent out of shape about that one, but we want to bring you the highest quality content on the Brewers podcast, and we couldn't possibly read the three beer facts or the three beer history points that were for today because they were literally that bad.
0: They were just, oh, Idaho Brewing Company opened. Like, nobody ate- Not even
1: that- be like Idaho Brewing Company farted into a jar.
0: Yeah, on this day. No, literally one of them was like, <laughs> um, "We um, intro- this so-and-so brewery introduced barley wine for the first time. And we're
1: like, that's not even a beer fact.
0: Yeah, cool. That's awesome.
1: Thanks, Greg Smith. I can't wait
0: till Greg Smith writes an ya. amended version next year and he's like, so-and-so brewery made a brute IPA and then nobody can care.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the uh, abridged second edition yeah. of
0: this book. But do you know what I'm mostly looking forward to, Emily? This year's, this week's. Fuck. Yeah, I mean, I, I wish that it was every week that I was getting a new shirt from with Shirts on Tap. But
1: wait, don't you wish it was every month, Matt? It is every
0: month. <laughs> funny story. So uh, every month you can sign up for subscription service and. Us millennials, we love subscription services. Yeah, we get our reason.
1: tampons and our, uh, yeah, great makeup example. Yeah. And our yoga mats. And don't forget your brewery t shirts. Yeah. Yeah. You can get those delivered every month too with shirts on tap.
0: How can we do that for $5, though?
1: So, you know what's funny, Matt? Brewroots has an exclusive discount. We if you do. use the code Brewroots on shirts.shirts. <laughs> shirts ShirtsonTap.com, you can get your first box for five dollars on a three-month subscription. So your next two boxes are 18. Yeah. Wouldn't you love to get a shirt every month from a brewery from one of the major cities in the U.S.?
0: We've gotten from Dallas, Colorado, Chicago, LA,
1: Colorado.
0: Colorado again. Uh, don't yeah. forget
1: about Chicago. Yeah,
0: but they're coming hopefully to Boston, and breweries will be leading the charge on that. So don't forget. For your first box, five dollars, use the promo code BrewRoots at shirtsontap.com. That's shirtsontap.com for all your shirt, shirt needs. Shirt needs.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, you know what, Emily? I'm sure Shirts on Tap is listening to this and they're like, thank you so much for
1: and sponsorship pulled.
0: Yeah, no shit. Um
1: we love you, what's Shirts next? on Tap. I, know next. I know what's next.
0: I know what's next. I need some knowledge because I love to talk at, at breweries and give facts. I got you introducing the brew roots beer fact of the week i always forget
2: that that's there
1: so the brew roots beer fact of the week is one that i chose personally because i'm a huge fan of the pilsner i don't think it gets much attention i really think that we need to talk about pilsner's What's so funny, Emily? Um,
0: Did you not that's like my dance moves? just making
1: some really awesome dance moves behind me <laughs> that are very distracting. So the Pilsner is a type of a pale lager. You all know that if you listen to our episode on lagers, where we Pilsen's also lagers, talked kids. about Pilsners being a branch of the lager family. But what I liked to learn about Pilsners is that the Pilsner gets its name from the Czech city of Pilsen, where it was first produced in 1842. The world's first blonde lager, the original Pilsner or is still produced there today. I thought that was pretty cool. And that's my beer fact.
0: Sick. Whoa, that was a good beer fact.
1: I know. So concise this week.
0: Yeah. I mean, last week you read uh, like a... A full-on Bible on it was Norse myth. It was an
1: epic. Yeah. And I mean, I didn't even read the whole thing because it was just like, it went too deep. But I was like, all right, I'm going to talk about Thor and then I'm just going to close this out because people are going to start like... Huh either getting way too excited or turning off their radios.
0: So before we get to our episode featuring Chris from Notch Brewing, I just wanted to take a moment to thank everyone who's listened the past two weeks. We've had astronomical numbers. I'm talking numbers that are... Astronomical.
1: Yes, unseen. And the last thing that I should say, just on that note, is that if you're not already following us on social media, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Brewroots. If you have episode suggestions, comments, or insults from Matt specifically or Ryan, you can send emails to info at brewroots.com and we are happy to hear your feedback. Absolutely. A lot of the feedback that we got last year was on the sound quality and we did a lot of work to improve that. Thanks to Ryan especially for helping us out with that and lots of other ideas around content that we've applied to 2019. So keep them coming.
0: Yeah. And if you've liked what you hear, please hit us up at our very public email. Like Emily said, info <laughs> at brewroots.com. Thank you, Matt. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I just like to repeat things because we like getting feedback. It's like a cool, it's a cool thing.
1: I think we also have ADHD, but yeah. that's chill. We'll discuss that with our physicians. Yes. On to the episode.
0: Cheers. All right, we're live. Well, not live. Uh Oh, yes. here we go. All right, we are here in cold Salem, Massachusetts. That doesn't mean it's not warm where we are right now, though. I'm here at Notch Brewery in Salem, Massachusetts. One of my personal favorites, actually. Not to put a personal bias on it, but I'm here with Chris. Chris Loring. How are you? I'm doing great. Did Thanks. I say your last name correct? Loring, yeah. yeah
3: good. There used to be an umlaut over it, and I think that went away during the uh, First World War.
0: Oh, gosh. Happens. <laughs> it happens. <laughs> uh,
3: thank you for letting me do this interview
0: today. I know you guys, are, you guys are busy, right? We've been chasing after you for a while, and I said to you,
3: it's not that you didn't want to do the interview. It's just you've been busy. I had good intentions every time I got the email, and it just never came to fruition. So, um, yeah, you got me now, so I'm uh, looking forward to it. So,
0: we ask this question every episode your role here at Notch, and your
3: first memory of beer. Uh, My role? Well, technically, uh, founder, owner, head brewer, Uh, even though my responsibilities go much further than that. But my main focus really is on production of beer, both here in uh, Salem and and any of our contract partners. So that's really what I work with day to day, and then just running the company when when I have an opportunity on the side. Uh, First memory of beer? Uh, was a, uh, tall boy of, I believe it was Schlitz or Schaefer, okay. um, behind my father's pool right next to the garage with my friend across the street when I was about 10 years old and we snuck it out of the fridge and drank it. <laughs> <laughs> so
0: I'm guessing that first beer you had didn't spark an interest to say going to own a brewery. Uh, what was the original plan? Um,
3: after I drank that beer? Well, no, no, just in <laughs> general. Yeah, what was after that beer? Though? <laughs> okay, God. Um, you mean the original plan to, to when I opened a brewery? No, no, no. So obviously
0: you didn't. your parents say, hey, uh, Chris, what do you want to do when you grow up? And you didn't say, I want to open a brewery. Uh, how did you get to this point?
3: Oh, I see. Okay, so that's kind of connected. So um, I went to engineering school and then business school. And in business school, I um, uh, was an entrepreneurship major. And I always... I, Wanted to open my own company, I didn't really know what that was going to be, but um, I always had this kind of entrepreneurial um, desire um, to have control and and not to work for the man and all that kind of rebellious stuff. And uh, the project I was assigned um, for my last class was to act as a consultant for an existing business or a startup, and it was just through the SBA of Massachusetts, and I was assigned to a brewer. Um, it was someone who was, uh, I believe, from Florida, and he was coming to Massachusetts to start a brew pub. And we were assigned this project to look for site development and all this kind of fun stuff. And that got me exposed to beer. And it was you know, that moment that I realized that, you know, one, I really loved beer because it blended the science and, and technology with the artistry that I really love, but also blended in, it could be entrepreneurial as well, and that I could actually do something on my own. Um, and that was really the, the genesis of all that. Um, and, you know, from there, it my, started my whole career. So, I, you know, I've been a brewer my whole life. I, you know, I didn't leave a career to go do this. I, You know, this is something I've always wanted to do. Very good. Do you
0: homebrew first, or...?
3: Um, I homebrew, but I, I did it a couple of times. I loathed it. I mean, I hated homebrewing. I, mean, I can't... <laughs> I still... I always tell the story, just that I just... Um, it wasn't very satisfying to me. It was just a lot of pain in the ass, and that doesn't mean I, I, mean, I think home brewers are really uh, a great feedback mechanism for, for, for professional brewers in terms of what do they think about the beer and what are the processes and what are they fooling around with. And I learn a lot from home brewers because they're out there on the edge doing stuff that commercial brewers can't do because right. there's no commercial viability for them. Home brewers don't care; they can do whatever the hell they want to do because they're, you know, they're just going to drink it themselves. Right. Um, but no, I so I've never really was a, a home brewer per se. Um, you know, I went to brewing school. Um, after college, and I apprenticed as a brewer under a couple of British guys, um, and that was kind of my entryway into beer. It wasn't through homebrewing. Was, I'm not the classic homebrewer term pro. I was just someone that went pro through school and apprenticeships. So you never worked as an engineer? You? Uh, so my first um, uh, brewery uh, that I helped co-found uh, was Tremont in Boston, and that was in the 90s and 2000s um, before we sold to a competitor. And before I started Notch, I went and worked for an engineering firm for you know, four years, five years, um, to take a breather, mm-hmm. and um, before I got back into you know uh, being a brewer again. So there was a little, a little bit there. Yeah, but there's 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 a lot of that in brewing, anyways.
0: So are you local? Are you local to the area? Where did you yeah? Grow up? So
3: um, uh, born in Salem, uh, lived in Salem for a while. My family moved to Peabody when I was in grammar school, and grew up in Peabody. Um, and uh, you know Salem. Uh, is special to me, and it's one of the reasons why I, I placed the brewery here. Is because my family's been here for a long time, um, you know, four generations. I live in my great grandparents' house. That when they came from Warsaw, Poland, you know, they finally scratched together money to buy a house, and that's where the house I live in now. And so I was going to place the place the brewery somewhere. Salem, I, I thought, really needed something like this, this use. And there's the Beer Works, and um, which is a you know a great spot for a restaurant that makes their own beer and they serve a really you know valuable um, service to the community. And I, I've gone there a lot over the years but I really wanted something a little more informal in the taproom um, that we created. Um, is something where you know, it's counter service only, it's not a restaurant, there's not that crush to turn a table. Um, so it's a little more uh, welcoming to families with children. Uh, it's a little more welcoming if you just wanna hang and have a beer. Um, you don't have to sit at the bar. If you're gonna drink, you can sit at a table, which you know, people don't think about, but uh, one of the things I think the taproom model has really shown is that people wanna sit at a table and drink beer. You know, because usually if you go to a restaurant, you can't sit at a table and just drink beer. They want you to have food. So you're not force-fed food. <laughs> so that, so we were like a coffee shop, but for beer. And I thought Salem could really use something like that because it's a pretty dynamic city where we have a lot of folks who are young families. Um, and we have a lot of, uh, you know, either, even just, you know, single, um, single folk that just want that kind of, you know, more casual, more laid-back feel. Absolutely.
0: Despite not being
3: a restaurant, I have to say you guys have the best pretzels.
0: You know, A.J. King. Uh, shout out okay. to A.J. King. Yeah,
3: yeah, A.J. Yeah, King, also uh, a Salem business, Salem uh, bakery that's been here for a number of years. Mm-hmm. They were one of the pioneers in doing something really cool in Salem. And uh, they opened the commercial bakery um, just maybe over a year ago, yep. and that allowed us to, to source pretzels with them. And they, they developed those pretzels just for us. They use our pilsner. So good. You know, and the recipe. They do a great job, and they, they do the traditional German method. Um, you know, I – I'm not a big fan of the pretzels that kind of taste like a loaf of bread mm. <laughs> like they're true german german pretzels and that that takes uh, a special process where you use lye a lye bath yeah. to get that crackly crust which and is they, actually they a little dangerous that. so it's pretty well it neutralizes neutral, among, yeah, yeah. Uh, among ba- um, uh, while it's baking so yes.
0: yeah uh let's talk about some lessons you might have learned from trim you know you were there for how many years
3: uh we started in 93 and uh, i think we're totally out and um sold in 2005. Mm-hmm. So what were some of the things that
0: you took from there that you incorporated to Notch and maybe lessons learned that you didn't?
3: Uh, I haven't really thought that much about it. So it's a really good question. I'm going to try to not have too much dead air here while I try to answer that. Uh, one is probably distribution, where we uh, uh, not only Tremont was the production brewery, kegs and bottles. Cans weren't even a thing at the time. Um, but we also distributed our beer. Uh, we also distributed other people's beer brew pubs, uh, British, German, um, Colorado beers. And so we had this whole model of doing everything ourselves. It was very, it was very punk rock uh, aesthetic. Everything was do-it-yourself. Um, that probably wasn't the best thing from a um, business model perspective at that time. Today's different. Like, so it's, it's, it's contextual. Back then, um, you could not get the margins required to make that work uh, in a sustainable way. Um, so we sold our distribution company uh, to a distributor and, and just became a brewery. And that was really a, a good move for us because then we focused on what we did really well and we weren't spread too thin. Um, so I think about distribution today um, and it's gone kind of back to where the brewery does everything again. Like night shift. Or... Like like night shift. Yeah. But I'm I'm thinking even a step further where the, the, the beer's not even distributed. The distribution is the customer comes to your right. tap room and not only buys your beer for on-site consumption but the cans as well to go. Yeah. And that is the best model for the brewer because they maintain all the margin that is usually given away to the wholesaler and the retailer. And you know the brewer traditionally had the farmer's lament where they got the lowest margin out of anybody that the retailer and the distributor made more per keg or per case than the brewer did. Um, that is supposed to be made up with scale, but small brewers don't have scale. So that, that model is really not um, beneficial to, to the brewer. So you know, fast forward to today, um, you know, with Notch, I started the distribution model, but I knew I knew you know, very soon on that I really wanted to get to the model where we were able to sell direct to the consumer in some fashion, so we could you know maintain some of that margin and have um, you know a solid business and, and be profitable. Um, and, am I on a tangent? You know, no, this is great. No, this is great because <laughs> I'm still thinking about your question. There's there's, there's a lot to dig in there. Um, you, know, it, it, you know, back in the '90s. Um, it, it, there, there wasn't um, the ability to charge as much as you needed, right? There was like the, you could only charge maybe you know $100 a keg, and Bud was 50, and so there was a there was a, a relative cost thing going on. Where today, I mean, you see six bottles of beer selling so for 300 bucks, you yeah. so you can do a distribution model that way, but it, it's insane. Yeah. Um, but there's a consumer that's willing to, to look at beer as a luxury product and not as a you know beverage of the working man, and so that that's kind of allowed a lot of breweries to still use the distribution model. Something that Notch
0: has done, though, is you guys, for example, like Left of the Dial, is a very affordable
3: beer, and that's widely available. Well, I appreciate that because I'm not sure we ever get recognition for it. And that's one of the reasons I want the contract model to start. Is that when I started Notch, there was a couple of things I, I thought about. One was that I wanted my beer to be affordable because it's Session beer. You know, the history of Session beers is, is born of workers' beer. Um, and that price point was really important to me, that I didn't want this to be the beer of kings, that you know, this wasn't gonna be served in a chalice and, and a stem glassware when this wasn't gonna be for contemplative nights of you know, evaluating this beer. It was just made, and those beers have, have their place. This beer was for everyday drinking. Um, and so that price point had to reflect that. Um, so I couldn't do that if I started day one producing my own beer because we'd never have the scale to do that, that you know, our 12-pack of 12-ounce ca- cans would have been 30 bucks to the right. consumer. No one's buying that. You know, for us to have, have, have profit. Um, and I wasn't going to build a brewery around a concept of session beer in 2010 when no one even knew what session beer was or no one even was making beers of modest alcohol. Everyone was doing, you know, double IPAs and Imperial Stouts and Bombers and selling them for seven bucks in a 22-ounce format. And I was like, well, that's hard to compete against. Um, and that doesn't even exist anymore. No, unless. it's gone. Yeah, you know, in, in, for some the brewer- better. I mean, it, I, in my it's opinion. for the better, but some breweries went away because of that, because yeah. that, that model changed and they didn't change with it. Um, yeah, so 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 Notch was a contract brand because of the price point, like you talked about. I wanted that to be an affordable beer, um, and so in Salem we produce about 10% of our beer here, um, and 90% is still at a contract level because the scale is required to make that affordable. Um, so at Two Roads, you know, I think they do about 250,000 barrels a year, and there's 10 other brewers there, and we all share the resources so the beer can be uh, as good as it can be um, and consistent as it can be at the price point it is because we all share at that, that scale. Um, and you know, I'm not sure we're going to go away from that anytime soon. Yep. Well, consistency is an important thing for sure, and I can say from – Is it? <laughs> I would say so. I don't, I'm starting to question that.
0: Is it just because you see other people not being consistent? Yeah, oh, God, yeah.
3: Yeah. God, yeah. Um, And I'm not saying that from a standpoint of that's good or bad. I mean, I, we're seeing beer become more like wine, not only in price point. Right. Um, and scarcity and perceived value, but in, well, this is batch-to-batch variance. Uh, and some consumers embrace that. And some brewers want the batch-to-batch variance. And not that it, I'm not saying it's not their intent. Maybe they, maybe it is their intent, and they can't execute. But that's a whole other conversation. I'm trying to be positive with this one. That right. you know, some brewers say, "Hey, you know, this year's different. This is what we did." And yep. someone's like, "Wow, I can pick that out. That's cool." So, I think consistency is important for a certain segment of the consumer base that still doesn't look at beer like wine. They look at it like I'm going to walk into you know whatever Total Wine, Cappy's. And I want this 12-pack to be exactly the way it was before. So, yeah, so we have to be consistent. I, I think that, you know, what I call the fridge beer, the go-to, the one that you always want to have uh, reliably, have reliability around because you, you know what the flavor profile is. Yeah, that has to be consistent. And we're, and we're that beer. So
0: it was not in existence before the tap room. Yeah. It was. So talk about that process of opening the tap room. When did you get to a point where you said, our beer's kind of taken off. We need to move into the future or, or be left behind.
3: Uh, so, not start two thousand ten. We really got attraction and feet underneath us around two thousand thirteen with the release of cans and twelve packs. And then it was at that point I started looking for a tap room site. And Salem was my first um, first city I was looking at, and I really I, it, there's not a lot of commercial property in Salem. Uh, it's a hot market, so if there's commercial property, it usually gets turned into a condo complex. Um, you know, if you're looking at, like an old ga- cool gas station, that's not maintaining its structure, that's going to become like you know a four story you know condo complex. Yep. It's a lot like Somerville. Um, there's just a lot of desire for you know housing and affordable housing, um, so you don't have a lot of these legacy structures of cool warehouses that you know can be uh, purposed for for, uh, for breweries. So I, I I didn't really find anything, so I started looking all over the place. Um, but I came back to Salem. Um, in my search, and we were able to find this property here in, on the South River uh, that feeds Salem Harbor, right downtown. That basically was an old, you know, uh, automobile showroom, you know, brick and structure and concrete floors and 20-foot ceilings. And that, I can't believe we found that here. Um, so we, we were quite fortunate to be able to do that. So there were a couple things I wanted in our taproom brewing. Um, one was obviously the, the ability to, to brew beer uh, without. Too many panes, you know. So we have proper floor, floor height, uh, ceiling heights, all kind of good stuff. Um, But also, I wanted outdoor space. Uh, And outdoor space was a major driver for me because I, I love going to Europe, uh, Germany, Czech Republic, beer gardens, beer gardens. And I'm highly influenced. I'm not really influenced by American American. I'm influenced by American brewers, but not the way that the beer is served by retailers. I mean, we're pretty much a saloon bar culture, which is cool, you know. But I like I like light. (laughs) In <laughs> drinking beer outside and growing up in the Boston area, I mean, you, it wasn't until recently you could, that you could serve a beer or, you know, alcoholic beverage outside unless the food was involved. I mean, there were really Puritan things that just hung on. And so for me, um, outdoor space was imperative because I wanted to bring uh, the beer garden culture to Boston and, um, and, 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 and uh, attach to the tap room. And people probably listen to me today saying, well, that's everywhere. In 2014, it, it was nowhere. Yeah. I mean, nowhere. Um, and I always told Salem, um, excuse me, uh, Boston restaurant restaurateurs, like, the first person to do a beer garden is going to crush it. I don't know why you guys aren't doing that. Well, and they, they, the response to me was, it's seasonal. You can't find the space, blah, blah, excuse after excuse after excuse. And so breweries started taking that on. And look what's happening. You see camp. You, you know, all, not- the, all, all the Salem restaurateurs are really pissed off. Yeah. I mean, so the, uh, the Boston restaurateurs are pissed off because the, the brewers are having these, you know, fun outdoor activities that revolve around beer. It's like, well, anyone could have done that, right? But brewers, you know, maybe because of the, the culture of beer drinking always lends to beer garden and seasonality that they were, they were the ones that had that foresight to be able to do it. But Boston was way behind the time. So, I, and, you know, I didn't recreate that. I didn't invent this. You know, I saw Germany, but I also took influence from, um, from New York and Philly that uh, had a pretty good beer garden culture going already and i was always questioned why boston couldn't do it so anyways long long-winded answer that you know salem had to be um right in terms of not only production but also that we had a tap room that had uh, an outdoor element so we have a 200 person beer garden on, on the south river um, which is really a large driver for us for you know six months of the year
0: yeah a lot of your tables aren't just two-person tables either so you encourage people to sit together and enjoy a pint
3: yeah and the, the, the tap room you know both inside and the beer garden outside was communal seating and again People listening to me today say, "Well, that's everywhere right now." It's ago four years ago. It, wasn't. it really wasn't. That's how, things, how fast things have changed, uh, and I'm I'm thrilled for that because that that's the type of um, uh, environment I really like to do my beer drinking in—the communal table aspect. Because you sit next to someone that you otherwise wouldn't strike up a conversation with, and those usually lead to really fun conversations. And if they don't, you just stop talking to the person. It's not a big deal. Right. But we had, we had an issue when our first year where people would come into the, the beer garden, and we have you know 26 tables. They're eight-person capacity tables, and if there are two people sitting on the end, no one would sit at that table. And right. So we had we had to go to people and say, "These are communal. No one owns a the table. They're shared." Oh, I get it, and, and they would start. You know, and so now we don't need to do that anymore, um, and it's fun to see that. Um, you know, we don't have a bar. And we don't have a bar. We have a bar. It's, it's a but it's um, it's a stand up. There's no seats, right. and so when you walk into the tap room, and if you're solo, you, know, you got to sit at a table, maybe with some other people, and you might have to get your head out of the phone and talk with them. And that's the whole point. And um, One of the things that uh, our bar staff saw right away, our taproom staff saw right away, is that because of the nature of our tables, I mean, we're pretty tight. These tables aren't too wide. Um, So you're close, sitting next to each other. If you're sitting across from your friend, you're less likely to get on your phone. Right. If you're at a bar, you're already looking at a lighted screen on a wall, and so the phone is just natural kind of way to, to, to you know, kind of hang out. And you're not really looking at your friend and talking to them. And here, if you're across the, if you tip, break out your phone and look at your phone and your friend's across the table from you, that's really rude. So you, we see less of that here. Um, and that's been really fun because the, the communal tables lead to, you know, conversation and, 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 and um, not the typical bar room type of behavior. Yeah. Why the name Notch. Uh, so back to Europe for a second. Um, in Germany, and in, uh, really Czech, this is really came from the Czech Republic, but it happens in some, some German towns as well. Uh, when you sit at the pub, it's typically owned by the brewer. The, the beer hall is typically owned by the brewer. So there's you know, not a, a wide variety, but the beer's really good, and it's typically one style. It could be a Kolsch in Germany, or it could be a Pils in, in, in Czech Republic. Um, and when you sit at the table, the beer comes to you. You don't have to order it. Because there's no selection, there's the, there's the one beer that's available, and uh, a coaster or a tab we put at the end of your bar, and they make a notch for every every beer that you've had, and it, specifically in the Czech Republic where their pilsner there is typically 10, ten twelve doh you know four four and a half percent, those beers keep coming, mm-hmm. um, and there's many notches on that on that you know tab or coaster by the end of the end of the round, um, or end of the session, I should say, and so that, that kind of was like the the um, subtle way to to talk about session beer that wasn't so in your or, face. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of session beers with some pretty um, uh, self-explanatory names that I think are just a little too cute. I didn't want to be too cute with it.
0: Yeah, um, were there any other names?
3: Yeah, it was a really terrible one. <laughs> so when I started the whole concept, I had to th- I had to talk about it in some kind of way. Uh, so I talked to people about you know, well, I'm going to build a brewery around the, or a brand around session beer and. Uh, So in England, they make barley wine that's of a high strength. And in the brewery, um, the runnings will will be cut off at a certain density. And those runnings then go to a separate beer, because you don't want to dilute the strong beer. And that goes to a small beer. And so I was just used the working name for Notch at the start was small, which is a really terrible call name at a bar. Because if you go up to a bar and ask for a small, they look at you like that's a size, not a beer. (laughs) So that didn't last very long.
0: did you, uh, when you when you were developing Notch and everything like that, was it you, yourself, or did you have other people?
3: Uh, initially, I was solo. Mm-hmm. Um, I left my uh, gig at the engineering firm, and um, I apprenticed as a brewer uh, up in Maine at Kennebunk uh, Brewing Company, and, and uh, so I convinced the head brewer there just to let me go in and brew some beers just to fool around a little bit, do some test batches. Um, and then I went to Ipswich, which is a short ride from here. And I've known those guys for a long time and uh, you know, agreed to do some contract at, at Ipswich. And so I just basically went around to whatever breweries would allow me to have the capacity and, and brew or oversee the production of the beer. So the first I think, two years was me solo, um, trying to see if this thing would work. And then um, the third year, I hired my first employee, which is uh, Zach, who's still with the company, who's our sales rep. Um, and, uh, yeah, and that changed everything. Yeah. yeah.
0: In a world, uh, we read an article last night that says 2018 was the year of the New England style IPA, the hazy IPAs. Mm-hmm. I don't see many here at Notch. Um, is that well, something that you keep true to? Because I, I am a Pilsner and Lager lover, yeah. so I appreciate what whatever you guys are doing. Uh, is that something that you guys made a conscious effort to stay away from, or is it just not a style that you're? Uh,
3: I mean, not at all, really. So in the tap room, we typically have have a couple of themes and there's always additional beers below that but those are kind of like one-offs that filter through like right now we have a scottish Sweet stout which is kind of an outlier we don't do a lot of that but we, we do these kind of you know once in a while beers that are, are very different than our core and our core at the tap room is really is the primary focus for us is lager a traditional european continental lager some american lagers in the summertime um and then we have been doing since we've opened, basically, our interpretation of the New England IPA, but at the session session strength. Mm-hmm. So all our pale ales, save for a few, um, are basically um, you know the New England style IPA methodology in terms of uh, the yeast, the dry hopping, when you dry hop, and the appearance. Um, and the appearance is secondary for us. It's about the flavor and max that are created. And that's the one thing that I think people really, man, that horse is way out of the barn, but, you know, the intent of New England IPA <laughs> is not the appearance. The intent is the flavors and aromatics that are created during this process, and the haze is the byproduct. But you don't know that's there unless you see the byproduct, right? right. So I understand that there's a correlation and there's a need to have that. Um, so now, so we've we have maybe five to seven rotating pale ales that are based on that New England style. Um, some of them are session IPAs if the you know if the flavor profile is what I consider the Session IPA or straight-up pale ale. Um, yeah, but you know, we, ha- we haven't made a conscious effort to stay away from it. I really like the New England-style New England beers, um, you know, uh, IPA-style beers. They're, the ones that are executed well, I think, are just fabulous, and they're so different, and they're so great. I love them. Um, the problem is I think there's a lot of people have jumped on this train because they either see dollar bills or they don't want to be left behind, and the execution is not really there. And that kind of sellies a lot of people, and it gives fuel to those that hate that style. They show, like, oh, this beer tastes like sandpaper. Right. It's like, I get that, because I do. So not everyone's doing a great job with them.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, let's, let's go back in time a little bit to day one of notch opening. Uh, what was it like? What was the atmosphere like here at the tap room? And how has it changed to today?
3: It was pretty surreal for me, because as long as I've been at it as a brewer, I've always been a production brewer. Never, in a, Well, I apprenticed in a brew pub, but I didn't really have anything to do with that, uh, the service of the beer. But uh, you know, I've never been a, a brew pub brewer or a taproom brewer. And so when we started serving beer directly to the consumer the day we opened, it was just so different for me in that these beers are being served at the same place we brewed them. They weren't going on a truck for distribution and you hope for the best that they're handled in, the, in the way that you want them. And that ultimate control of how that beer served at the place you brew them was, um, it's very rewarding. And that you know, we, we I did a lot of things in the bar that um, it took a couple of, a couple of years for people to recognize. But our draft system for our Czech lagers was imported from uh, Pilsen in the Czech Republic because those beers are poured in a very specific manner, and I wanted to make sure that if we were doing things traditionally in the brewery, which we do, that it was done the same way um, at the bar. You know, and so the ability to have that um, control from brewery. Um, to glass was really amazing. So our glassware, you know, if it, if a beer served from us, it's going to be in the perfect glassware. Everyone says that, you know, but it is. I mean, our Czech lagers are served in a mug with a handle, and people think Czech pilsen should be in a fluted stem. They're not. You never see that. And it's, and it's through the draft system that you know I know it is required for that. So there was that control that was really cool. And then just seeing people can enjoy your beer, you know, at the place places brewed. Um, for me, it was really fun. Um, and then seeing all those those years and months and days of meetings and planning and, you know, the team, because at this point it's a team that, you know, everyone involved from the brewers to our sales reps to our taproom staff um, were involved in decision-making and to see that all come to fruition is really... I mean, everyone who's open to taproom experiences, it's like, wow, it's happening, it's real. It's it's a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, you guys do a lot of community events as well. Is that important to stay close to the community? I know during the holiday season you guys had the... like an open market for yeah a, the german Christmas market
3: you, you know again you we're highly influenced- I'm highly influenced by what happens in um, you know uh the european beer beer scene because I think they do i mean they've been doing it for hundreds of years so they've refined it, <laughs> they know what they're doing <laughs> they know what they're doing um, yeah, but one of the things i've I always always loved I mean, loved about that um, the open markets were that you're you're supporting uh local artisans, so for us to do this is the third year we've done the German uh, Christmas market, and this year we had twenty five vendors that were you know all local um, all handmade things. And they're selling them to the local community, so that money's not going to Amazon; um, it's going to the local person down the street, direct, and they're getting full margin on it, right? They're not, there's no distribution model. That, again, it's it's much like the tap room um, that the person who made it is getting all the money, um, and so this it was wildly successful for us. All, um, and um, you know, it's those community events that, that you know drive me that, that that's important that the brewery is is linked. Because a lot of I mean, tap, the taproom culture right now is that it's part of the community. And if you're not, you know, if, you're kinda, if you set yourself up outside of the community, and you don't, you're only hurting yourself because it, it has to be inter- integrated. And for me, it's easy because, again, I,
0: I'm from here. In the same vein of community, how important is the internal beer community? By internal, I mean the network of brewers. It seems like it's a pretty tight-knit community. Uh,
3: yes and no. OK. Yeah. As it grows, it's getting harder when I was at Tremont, I think there were two hundred breweries in the country and in Massachusetts, including brew pubs, there might have been 25, 20. and so you needed and this is you know pre all information on your phone. Uh, brewers needed each other um because there wasn't you know you couldn't answer or find a recipe on your phone within you know thirty seconds you know it took some like weeks sometimes, and so there was socializing done um at a much more frequent frequent rate and today. Um, you could open a brewery and not talk to any other brewer and never want to or, or, or and I don't think that's good I think it, it, it takes away from the from I think the community but um, so I think you see some brewers that still have that out, outreach and they they want to be part of that community other brewers that just they have their head down and they're going to do what they want to do and neither one's right or wrong I prefer one so the reason I bring that up is we talked about this a little bit before Paul
0: Gentili from Gentili Brewing uh, true North a lot of the, the local brewers attribute your success to why they wanted to do that. And I know that's a double-edged sword, right? Cuz you might feel a little personal if they fail, which I don't think any of these will, but I'm saying it's it's just something that you are giving back to the community.
3: Well, I w- I worked with both those guys. Right. You know, they both worked at Ipswich and I had a working relationship with them. And in some ways I owe back to them cuz they allowed me to brew in their brewery and I was probably paying the ass and they allowed me to do what I wanted to do. And so you know, if I have a personal relationship with someone, it doesn't have to be that deep. We just work together, we talk, or I go to the brewery and we hang out, you know, and just, just an outreach where, you know, you build a relationship, and that's important to me. Um,
0: but you're known as one of the, the good guys, quote-unquote, in the brew community. It's And I'm not just, you know, just...
3: <laughs> Maybe. Not just because you
0: gave me a free beer, but I mean, it's just it's just something that... You've sure, built but that reputation.
3: I'm gonna tell you, there's probably some people that don't think that way. Because if you email me and just ask me for shit, I'm probably not gonna respond. Right. And if I do respond, I'm probably gonna be kind of terse. Because if I don't know you and you ask me for shit, like you're you're just kind of you're just trying to make your life easier without putting in the time. If you come down and have a beer and hang out, and then you ask me, you send me that same email, i be like, yeah, cool, here you go. Um, I mean, yesterday the guys from um, Old Planters emailed me, right? And um, we've just. Built up a rapport over a couple of years. They're a contract brewer at Ipswich, and now they're building a brewery in Beverly. And they asked about the glycol chiller, and my response was very short. I don't think there's even capitalization or punctuation in it, but I told them everything they needed to know within 30 seconds because I like those guys. Right. All right. Um, if that was a brewer that did the same thing, and, and I didn't know, just we all have you know, a finite amount of time in the day, and you know, I'm just not going to do that. So, I mean, I don't want to sound negative about it. Um, I do wish there was a little bit more community among brewers sometimes. I think I think we've gotten away from that a little bit.
0: Okay, that's fair. That's fair. Um, so Salem as a community, you're very involved in the Salem community. What's next for
3: Notch? Oh, Jesus. Um, sometimes I can't think about the following day. I wake up and think, like, what was my schedule look like? Uh, well, at least for us, we just finished an um, uh, expansion project for production, not for the taproom for production. So we uh, doubled the size of the brewery, double more than probably tripled the size of our... Um, capacity here in terms of making beer. Uh, and you're on what barrel system? How? It's just a ten barrel 10 system. Barrel. Well, we can we can kettle ups fourteen barrels. We typically yield you know just over ten barrels you know per batch, depending on what we're brewing. And so uh, that allows us to do uh, more mobile canning. And so we started mobile canning here before we even did the expansion, which was insane because we're, we were very tight. But now this frees us up to do uh, much more. Um, you know, one-offs or, or continuous beers from 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 uh, from Notch. So uh, we're excited to do that. Um, and so this coming year in 2018, you'll see a lot of draft-only favorites at the taproom. Make it 2019. Of 2019. Jesus, yes. <laughs> I just look at my calendar more often. Yeah. Um, 2019. You'll see a lot more of um, uh, our single series uh, in cans, which are basically some of the taproom favorites. That are coming out, and so uh, we started that uh, that whole series with the the standard, which is our uh, chuck Pilsner. Uh, we just released released Black Lager, a Pivo. Yeah. Um, and then next month we have Raw Power, which is our Session IPA, New England style Session IPA, cool. sitting cans. And then we'll probably get back to the standard. The standard was really well received, and that's my baby, so I'm really happy about that one. Um, yeah. So, and then we also have this other. We're doing a side project, so after basically nine years of producing only session beer, uh, we're doing uh, what's called the Vol, Vol Project. Vol is German for full strength. Mm-hmm. So not necessarily str- necessarily strong, but is full strength, not session. Um, that came about for a couple of reasons. One is that we were doing a couple fest beers that were uh, not session strength, but we still wanted to brew them for these festivals. And I was uncomfortable excuse me, uncomfortable with those being called Notch. as a promise to the consumer when, when they see Notch that it's – Gonna be modest strength, and you're not gonna get in trouble. Okay. Well, You can get in trouble, but it's gonna take you a little longer. Right. Uh, be, be responsible. Be uh, responsible. And then, um, you know, we want to brew these stronger beers. So we did a, a you know a typical uh, or, or uh, traditional fest beer for our Oktoberfest. and we did uh, we have a Stark Beer Fest, which is a strong beer fest in March, which we did a, a Doppelbach. And um, so, with that in mind, there's a lot of the styles I want to do that aren't session because our capabilities in the brewery really lend themselves to doing some really great Czech and German lagers, um, that are outside, um, that, that core of, of session beer. Uh, and it's fun. You know, we, we learned, we, we learned, I've take a step back as a brewer. I've learned a ton about being constrained by only brewing session beer mm-hmm. in ways I never would have, if I had the freedom to do anything. Right. Um, it's, cause you gotta, you gotta work for all that flavor and you gotta work for that balance and it's, it's, it was. It's really been, um, you know, an interesting you know path for me. And so now, after only doing that constraining myself for eight years and only doing a session beer to be able, be able to brew full strength beers, um, I'm taking a different look at it as I would have is if I just came right at it um, with full strength beers. So that's been fun. Yeah. So uh, the two, the first two vol beers will be um, in cans. We're doing some limited release out of the brewery. Will be uh, uh, a Helles Special or. Uh, uh, basically a stronger version of a Hellas. So if you go to Munich, um, both Augustiner and Ondex uh, have like a high fives, high, you know, 5.8 uh, ABV Helles, um, or it's sometimes called export strength. And so we are, we're brewing that for cans as well. Um, and then we're also we're doing a New England IPA um, as well, which we've run a couple test batches through. Because, again, I like that style a lot. And back to what I just talked about, our take on it, it's not going to be just paint-by-numbers, you know, cover band look at what an ipa new england ipa is we're going to do it ourselves yeah make it your own make it our own um and i definitely have a a a palette that i'm not really keen on some things like excessive sweetness um is not really something i love even though that's very popular within some of the new england uh, ipas I i like bright and crisp and clean and you can do that within an ipa um, so it's going to lean more towards that. And that may put some people off, but it may attract some people that, you know, feel fatigued after a can of a, you know, vanilla and IPA.
0: Yeah. So you do really practice what you preach with the keeping community. Uh, the black log of the cans, the art was done by local artist Mara O'Connor, a yeah. friend of the podcast. She's done a couple cans. Do you continue to reach out to local artists to get your can art done? Or who does some of your can art?
3: Uh, it's Mara's gig until she wants to, <laughs> to retire. <laughs> you heard that, Mara? Um, yeah, it, that was uh she did uh uh, we do a thing called art riot in uh in the fall um and she was there uh with their illustrations and uh when i saw them i was was just blown away how great they were and she has this she can do this real sinister thing with some of the animals she she draws which it was it was twisted in all the great ways
0: yeah and she is like no taller than 5'2 and like (laughs) the sweetest girl in the world like yeah
3: yeah so that coming from her is really cool um so, uh, so now with the single series and the cans coming out of sale, and was it only appropriate that we use some in local for the for those illustrations. And uh, the raw power can is really, really cool. Uh, I won't give it away. Um, yeah, you know, so that's that, that's part of it. You know, that we're doing that. the the The, the brand itself is uh, a friend of mine owns a, a, a marketing branding firm in Boston. Mm-hmm. They're local, and so he's he's been doing he's been doing the brand since um, since we started. Yeah. The beer that Notch is most known for is. That's a good question. Probably left of the dial. Okay, it's our number one seller. Left of the dial in twelve packs is just a beast. Um, uh, you know, and then, I, but if on premise or you know, bars and restaurants, it's probably pills. Okay, Session pills, um, which the it predates left of the dial. Pills has been around for you know seven plus years and came out when a time when pills were not popular. Like everyone, every you know hazy IPA brewer was putting out some kind of pills or lager probably because they want something to drink at the end of their shift. Right. That's my, my, my assumption. Um, but uh, you know, we came out with that way ahead of everyone. Um, I mean, Victory had you know, pills in the market, obviously, and I think um, a lot of the Pennsylvania brewers did. Uh, but there was nobody really local pushing that, and we focused on that. And so we have a lot of draft lines uh, for pills uh, in town. And um, so I think we might be known for that you know, equally, depending on the customer.
0: Well, let's get to know you a little bit more. Uh, what's in your fridge at home?
3: Oh, Jesus. Um, Bissell Brothers, those guys love to visit us. And so for some reason, I always have a healthy amount That's of awesome. Bissell Brothers That's in my fridge. Um, I have the collaboration brew we did in Manchester, UK, with Cloudwater. Cool. Uh, they sent us a case. And we actually had a keg on, on draft for basically a day. Um, I got a 12-pack of pills, notch pills. I got Jack's Abbey post shift Pilsner. I have some mislabeled Chernay Pivo black (laughs) lager. And that's it.
0: (laughs) Sounds good. Do you have a guilty pleasure beer?
3: Oh, shit. I got a lot. My guilty pleasure, probably most, um, are just cold American pale lagers. Okay. Um, High Life, Bud, Pabst, um, but ice cold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Appropriate appropriate cold. It yeah. doesn't have to be have icicles on it. It doesn't have to be in a chilling glass. And I think about those beers differently than I think than some consumers. And some people I, I some I, some people hear me say that and they're like, uh-huh. you're a brewer, like don't you have standards? Like, well, I don't think of those as beers per se the way I want to brew them or drink or, or like consume them at, at notch. I think about them as something else. It's a totally different experience. It's refreshment, it's cold, um that's it. It's it's just some people just can't get their head around that. You know? But for me, that's a, that's, a, that's a guilty pleasure. Where do you draw inspiration from?
0: Are you like a musician? Do you have a note by your bedside table? Or do you draw through history or people that beers that you like? So
3: inspiration comes typically when I'm running. Okay. Um, because I hate running, but I, I run all the time, so I get my mind off of it. I don't listen to a you know, headset or anything that when I run, so I typically think about things that uh, like that when I'm running, especially the treadmill in the yeah. winter. But the inspiration typically comes from, you know, I said music's a big one. Um, and then, um, you know, what brewers are doing. Um, again, I go back to Europe, and a lot of my inspiration, what's happening there, but I still take a lot of inspiration for what's happening um, you know, in New England. Again, I, I think the New England IPA is, is really just, the revolutionary, you know, shift in um, what it means to be a beer in terms of appearance and texture and flavor and all that. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I, I used to use this phrase all the time. I haven't thought about it in a while. But um, uh, uh, there was a band in Boston, uh, Morphine, and um, Mark Sandman, uh, rest in peace, uh, was it was their bass player and lead, and. Extremely talented guy, talented musician, and he played a bass with two strings. And I was listening to NPR one day in the morning, and, and they were interviewing him. And they, they asked him why. He said, "Because those limitations forced me to be more creative. If he had gave me a six-string bass, it'd just be masturbatory. It'd just be. I'd be. It, there'd be no cohesion to it. It'd just be. I'd be all over the place. Where two strings forces me to get the most out of it. And I think that way about session is Like, you're, you know." If given, any, given anything, yeah, you probably wouldn't work as hard to, to, to get those flavors or have that creativity. So that, was, that always sticks in the back of my head. Like, limitation always breeds to some, kind, some type of innovation.
0: What's the most rewarding moment you've
3: had here at Notch? I don't know. It's not a moment. It's, this is on repeat every Friday, and you may catch it because it's a Friday afternoon. We have two gentlemen that come in, both retired, in their 70s, like clockwork. And they sit across from each other, no phones. Well, they don't even own cell phones, but no phones. And they drink half liter after half liter and just talk to each other. No newspaper. There's no television here. And they love it so much they keep coming. So we've, that's rewarding because we've created an environment that is special to these guys. And both these guys um, are incredibly traveled and smart. But a salt of the earth so we're doing something right you know because to me like that's what I want to be when I'm these guys you know when I'm their age, I'd hope to have find that same that same spot where I can you know go meet my friend and talk for three hours over beers every single week
2: mm-hmm.
3: What are you most proud of i don't know I'm not a person that get to, to my biggest failing is I never take a step back and say, wow, that, that, that's cool, right? I always look to how to improve. And I tell that with my staff all the time is that I always apologize because I have a hard time saying, wow, that was really great. I always, my, my thoughts are always, how do we improve in what we just did that was great? You know, and I have to tell my production staff that. So Brianne and Kate, who are my two production brewers, um, they sense that. You know? <laughs> so, um, I, I, know. I just
0: want to mention, it is awesome that you have, female brewers not that i'm not sure i'm sure it's not that you were like i need female brewers but it just happened to be in in a field that is
3: it's male dominated Uh, well my so at tremont when we started production there our first brewer was besides myself first brewer was a male but the second brewer after that i hired was a female this is 1994 Um, and someone asked me you know today like well did you seek out female employees? I said, no, I just hired the best person that was exactly. available for the job because their resumes were the, were the best. Uh, Brienne um, has been a production brewer for over five years. Um, she's constantly going back for uh, professional development, um, you know, schooling. Um, so she's our production manager now, and she's, she's an amazing talent. And then Kate, uh, biochemist from you know, University of Vermont. She runs our QC program. Is now getting into production brewing. She always worked in a lab. She didn't do production brewing, so now she's getting into production brewing. Um, and they were the best two candidates out there. Uh, and I've had a lot of people knock on the door saying they want to get in, but no one was better than those two. Yeah. That's awesome.
0: So thank you so much, Chris, for taking some time out of your day. You guys are really busy here, so I do appreciate it.
3: It's <laughs> no, it great. I'm sorry it took so long. No,
0: no, no, no. That's not a, that's not a, I'm glad that we got this, this going. Um, where are we located? Salem, so we can have some of our listeners so uh
3: 283 rear derby street so we're in the back of the building Uh, it's right downtown um at the the intersection of uh, derby and congress uh, across the street from pickering wharf Mm -hmm. and uh where
0: are you guys on social media
3: oh uh so notch brewing uh facebook at notch brewing twitter uh notch brewing instagram and i think that's it
0: yeah all right, and if you guys haven't made it to one of their fest events, I went to the Oktoberfest this past October. It was kick-ass. I drank too much. So thank you, Uber. <laughs> it was an awesome event. I would heavily suggest, because upcoming in March, just a month away from now, you have your event coming up, right?
3: Uh, yeah, so we have a Stark Beer Fest at the uh, end of March, um, which will, uh, that's a fun event, because we get out the loggerhead, which is the iron pole that we put into a live fire and then stick into your Doppelbock for a foaming adventure. <laughs> so that's a good one. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Chris, for taking some time. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And we'll catch you sometime soon. All right. Keep up the good work.
0: Thanks.